Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscious of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine and worldwide on the TalkShoe Radio Network. Find it on the Internet. Just Google TalkShoe, Northern Maine Landman, and there you'll be. Friday, February 16th, 2018. Kind of a dreary day. Warming up, it's going to be above freezing. Snow is starting to slide off my pole barn roof. I've got a pole barn, and uh, it's not heated, not insulated, so inside of the barn warms up and, and starts to thaw the snow on the underside of that pack. The snow starts sliding, sliding down the roof, and it, sometimes it lets go all at once, but more often it just slides very, very slowly down the slope of the roof and goes off the edge and, and then it bends very slowly into a curl. So that's what I've got on the on the roof right now. It's this great big long curl of snow. Snow is funny stuff. Snow is quite strong in compression. And uh, you know that's why snowmobiles can ride on it usually. And uh <laughs> Sometimes you can't because it's too powdery. The Eskimos, according to Farley Mawat, a Canadian author, he wrote uh, numerous books about the, the far north in Canada, the Arctic, and the uh, native people up there. They don't like to be called Eskimos. Eskimos are, is a derogatory term, and it's, it translates into people who eat raw meat. Yeah. So they 
they don't like that word that we invented for them. They uh, somebody heard the name and just said, "Well, that's what they are. They're Eskimos." They call they uh, they call themselves the Innu, which is the people of the north. Worked up in Canada for seven years and uh, learned quite a bit about Canada. When you talk to people, you know, sit down in a restaurant, you strike up a conversation with somebody, and, and uh, you learn a lot just by listening. Went down to Portland on Wednesday this week, and I uh, was invited down to speak to the the Pine Tree Fish and Game Club, and uh, the oldest fish and game club in the state. And they're limited to 100 members. And when somebody moves away from Maine, goes to Florida or something, they, uh, you know, they'll have a vacancy. Or somebody will pass away and they'll have a vacancy. It's quite a club. They have a relatively expensive fee to join the club, but the annual dues, once you're a member, are not too bad. And two years ago, the club invited some game wardens from the Portland area, around Sebago and Cumberland County, to come to their annual dinner. And the game wardens all came, and they presented each of the game wardens with a DeLorme topographic map program for their GPSs. They gave them a GPS and the program. And I, I don't know how many game wardens there were there, five or six maybe. I'm just guessing. But they told them, we're going to give one to everybody. We're going to give one to every single game warden in the state. And one of them, one of those programs was used to find a lost person. Was an elderly person wandered off in the woods and became lost right next to his own property. He was on his neighbor's property, but it was, you know, he was never more than half a mile from the house. And they plotted it out and said, well, you know, where could this guy be? And they figured out where it was. The game warden went out there with his dog, and there he was. He'd been two nights out there before he was found. But the first night, nobody called. So the game wardens didn't get involved as early as they should have. I don't know if they didn't realize he was missing or what the story was. But anyway, he got found partially because of this this uh, GPS and mapping program that Pine Tree Fish and Game Club donated to the state. The individuals, they didn't just give a whole box of these to the state in the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. They presented them to the individual game wardens. They belong to the game wardens. So that was a good thing. I spoke about uh, Project Appleseed. And if you've listened to the show any length of time, I mention it on a regular basis. But March, uh, first weekend in March, we have a winter seed coming up. If you make riflemen in winter conditions, which I fully expect to have, then uh, you get a special patch. It's a rifleman patch, but it's got white icicles hanging off the bottom of it. And I, I'm going to hope that I get. I'll be the shoot boss, and I hope to, uh, hope 
to flop down there and fire a rifleman score during the winter seat. In the last couple, I haven't had time. So I just like to collect the patch. I've got shot riflemen on a regular basis. They'll flop down there and just shoot a rifleman score. Well, they have a, we, I say they, we have a target that we use as a diagnostic tool. We call it the red coat target. We put up one target, and it has uh, one target paper, and there's four different targets, images, silhouettes on the paper. The first one is what the target looks like at 100 yards. The second one, 200 yards. Third one, 300 yards. Next one is 400 yards. It's quite a small target. If you can put one round in the target, that's luck. Put two rounds in, that's coincidence. Put three rounds in there on that target, that's skill. Okay? And if you do it on a 100-yard target, you're a 100-yard shooter. If you do it on the 400-yard target, you're a 400-yard shooter, which means you can hit a 20-inch square reliably at 400 yards. Now, there's no trajectory in this for this particular target. It's all the same distance. But the size of the target diminishes. And then there's one separate one called the headshot. Now, in some states, they don't call it the headshot. They call it the shingle. But Daniel Morgan in Pennsylvania had the only company of riflemen in North America, not just on April 19, 1775, but he had the only company of riflemen. They were Pennsylvania rifles, and Germans brought rifle-making technology to North America, and they were steel rifles. All of the muskets at Lexington and Concord on both sides were cast iron muskets. And they'd put the powder down the barrel and they'd drop the ball down and they'd fire. And the first thing that came out of that barrel was a belch of flame because the, the musket ball was not a tight fit in the barrel. If you If you put wadding on there, and you pushed that down the barrel and fired, the barrel would blow up. It's cast iron. Cast iron is not strong compared with steel. So they were all essentially like fouling pieces. It's like a it's like a shotgun barrel that's excuse me. It's a shotgun barrel that's made out of cast iron. Can't use modern powder in them. But they uh, they had a a pretty good uh, they knew what they were doing when you when you can cast a tube cast iron that's about forty inches long and straight you know that's a pretty good that's pretty good casting and they have to have a new mold for every single barrel. You pour it in there, let it cool, and then knock the clay off it, and there's your steel barrel. And they would blow them and, and rust them. They had, they had browning and bluing and blacking, depending on the chemical they used to, to preserve the iron so it wouldn't rust. 
Those old-timers knew what they were doing. But Daniel Morgan made rifle barrels out of steel. The Germans taught him how to do that. And he had a standard that he could use. If you could hit a pumpkin at 250 yards, you could be a member of Daniel Morgan's rifle company. Well, 250 yards is a ways out there. 750 feet away. 500 feet, 528 feet is a tenth of a mile. So, it's a ways out there. And Daniel Morgan, oh, by the way, if you couldn't hit a pumpkin at 250 yards, you could be a cook until you could hit the pumpkin. And a pumpkin back then wasn't like the huge pumpkins we see today. A pumpkin back in 1775 was about the size of a man's head, and that was his standard. Daniel Morgan wrote a, wrote a letter to King, King James in, in England. And, uh, and he said, uh, King George, pardon me, King George, he uh, he said, if you if you intend to send any more officers over to America, tell them to put their or put their affairs in order before they leave, because I have not a man in my rifle company that cannot put a rifle ball through a redcoat officer's head at 250 yards. Well, they printed that in the London newspaper. And the British officer said, you know what, Ethel, I think we'll put in and go to go to India instead of America. None of those people over in India have rifles. Marksmanship has determined the outcome of most battles in history. And there's long long line of of super-accurate rifleman. So, it was an interesting time talking with the sportsman's club down there. and uh, They've done a lot of good work. They, they, you know, it, it's fun. They own a piece of property on Sebago Lake, six or 800 feet of frontage on the lake. It's a non-profit, charitable organization. And, and they camp. They have campers and people go tending there. There's a beach and on Sebago. It's worth a lot of money. 800 feet of frontage on Sebago. There was an old home on it, and the, the home was in disrepair. And when the club inherited this property, uh, they, uh, they simply... Uh, they, they dismantled the home, and they just uh, they built a pavilion now. They get in out of the weather and have cookouts. And it's but it's a beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. I haven't been there yet. My son and his wife go camping there. So, a lot going on in Maine this week. This week on Valentine's Day. The the jail 
down in Machias was closed. You know, the the state didn't need as many prison cells as they had. They needed to close down one of the facilities, and the, one of the more expensive places to house prisoners is the, is the jail at Machias. And they're not the, the the worst guys. You know, the prisoners are they've committed crimes. They they deserve to be sentenced to, to penalize their uh, their crime. But they were moved this week. They said they were going to close it down. They're going to move the prisoners to other facilities. So the newspaper and the TV stations, you know, were all indignant because. They said, well, the governor didn't tell us. Yeah, he did. He just didn't tell you what time it was going to happen. They rolled in there at 4.30 in the morning, loaded up all the prisoners, and went from there to Charleston. They put the prisoners in, in the jail in Charleston. They have a youth uh, prison there. I don't know if they call it prison, but they have a youth facility there for kids that can't behave themselves. They have to be separated from society and hopefully rehabilitated so they can, when they're released, they can be responsible citizens and productive citizens. Ideally, that's what should happen. They used to call them reform schools because they actually reformed the kids from being criminals to being good citizens. That used to happen half a century ago. Now, some of these kids uh, are insufficiently penalized for their behavior, and they reoffend, and they embark on a life of crime. Some of these kids are mentally ill. You know, they're not homicidal maniacs necessarily, but some of them are. In our school system, 20, 25 years ago, there was a student brought into the system, and they used the term joined at the hip. This this student could not be out of reach of an adult, ever. It's not safe for the student to be on his own. And I substituted in that school during the time that he was there. Met this kid, spoke with this kid, Treated him like an adult, and uh, and he he enjoyed speaking with me. And I, you know, told him, look, we all have choices to make. And we, I've done a trained counsel. I was a parent <laughs> of two sons, of whom I am well proud. They're both engineers and both responsible citizens. But this kid came from what we used to call a broken home. Parents were not together. We've got kids in the system today that don't even know who their parents are. It's it's tragic. And schools and institutions tend to medicate the kids. The kid is boisterous. Boys tend to be boisterous and active and enthusiastic, and it's, it's their nature, and they're competitive. And they don't want to sit there in the school with their 
hands folded listening to the lecture. It's just they need to be active. They need to be doing something. So they they uh, they medicate the kid. They give them psychotropic drugs, and and the kid calms down. He has little choice. He's been anesthetized. They do it with animals, you know, horses. When they take a mama bear out of her den, they anesthetize the mama bear. They weigh the cubs and put uh, tabs in the cubs' ears, keep track of this is bear number, whatever number they were, and mama bear is there. And if she's well-nourished in the fall, and, and she might have three cubs. And they've got they've got photographs of a of a mother bear with four cubs. She may have adopted one or two other cubs when the when the other female bear disappeared for whatever reason, maybe hit by a truck or something. But maybe that that saw bear did have four cubs. It, it may happen. I don't know. I'm not a bear expert. <laughs> but uh, in order to analyze, weigh the cubs, and put them back in the den again, they anesthetize the mama bear. We give psychotropic drugs to children. It should not happen. We're going to send these kids out into society and should they be on psychotropic drugs for their entire life? No. They shouldn't be on psychotropic drugs for the entire school year, and they should not be prescribed by the clerk at the desk. These are supposed to be regulated narcotics. And we're giving them to kids. And people who don't have very much medical training at all are administering these kids. So, you know, there are situations where in the recent past, teachers have had a jar of drugs in their drawer and they'd give the kids some Ritalin. Well, that zones them out. They're less disruptive in class. In the last 20 years, every single school shooting that's occurred has been done by a person on psychotropic drugs. Some were self-administered, but most often they're administered by the government. Whether the government is a social worker or a foster parent, or a school teacher, or a school nurse, somebody has given this kid psychotropic drugs. And it isn't just in the lower grades. Keep Johnny settled down while he's just sitting there in the seat in the fourth grade. It throughout high school. And then they go on to college. And some of these kids are continue to get Ritalin when they're in college. And that... Uh, Virginia Tech 
one one of these students who was on psychotropic drugs shot a whole bunch of people at Virginia Tech five or six years ago. And then this week, a student who had been expelled from school, the school just couldn't deal with him anymore, and they sent him out, expelled him from this particular school, went to a different school, and they expelled him. And he was on psychotropic drugs. And the kid looks weird. I mean, maybe his mother was on, you know, delivered a baby that had fetal alcohol syndrome. If mom's drinking the whole time she's pregnant, you're going to have a child that has fetal alcohol syndrome. And that person will never reach the potential that he might have had had mom not been in the bottle all during the pregnancy. And people make these choices. It says on the bottle, don't drink if you're pregnant. You know, people buy booze and drink when they're pregnant. Bad idea. Harmful to the kid. They do it. Same thing with psychotropic drugs. Psychotropic drugs have temporary beneficial effect from time to time. But to be used to give it to a kid for a week or a month or for the whole school year, it changes their ability to think. It changes their ability to learn. And it changes their behavior, maybe permanently. But this week, a student down in California, down in Florida, went to school. He, he's a former student. He he uh, was expelled from this particular school and bounced around a little bit. Went out. He, when he turned 18, he went out and bought an AR-15 rifle. Went back to the school that had expelled him and dumped the magazines. Fired a lot of rounds. And some one of the classrooms had, uh, they had 11 kids shot in that particular classroom. He walked around the corner, laid the rifle down, and walked out of the building with all the other kids. Went down the street. Went to a Subway, had a Subway sandwich inside a Walmart. And then he walked out of the Walmart, went down the street, went to a McDonald's, had a McDonald's sandwich. He knew he was going to get caught eventually, and he did. So, And students, when the, when the shooting was going on, I'll call this guy Henry. I don't know what his name was. Oh, I bet that's Henry. Because the, the kids expected this Henry to be a school shooter eventually. And this Henry, I'm just picking the name, I don't, don't recall, his last name was Cruz. But he put on the Facebook page that he wanted to be a career school shooter. He wanted to shoot up a school. And he did. 
And they people called the FBI and said, this kid wants to shoot up a school. We ought to do something to prevent this from happening. So the legislature puts this, puts in, puts in the bill, excuse me, and said, no, we've got to, got to get a handle on this. But he went to the school, and there was a kid coming out of the school to go somewhere. Maybe he went from one building to another. He said, better get out of here. And he knew the shooter. And the shooter knew this kid. But he didn't shoot that kid. He knew him because the kid had probably been polite to him or treated him decently. And when kids have mental problems, people sense that they're different. Students and faculty both treat them differently than the other kids, and it doesn't take them long to figure out they're being discriminated against, and they're uncomfortable with it. And eventually, they lash out in retaliation for what has been done to them by the system. And I'm a school board member. I become aware of situations, both during board meetings, but citizens will come to school board members and tell them things that they've seen or heard. It may not be accurate, but this is information. It's, it's information, whether it's accurate or not, it's information that they want to share because they're concerned. They would like your schools to be safe and efficient. So they go talk to a school board member and said, you know, my sister's son, my nephew, is being picked on in school repeatedly, unmercifully picked on. And when you receive information like that as a school board member, you need to act on it. Say, okay, okay, well, we'll take care of it. No. You need to act on it, because if you don't act on it, this kid that's being picked on may decide someday that he's going to exact a toll on those who have picked on him. And this is how kids think. There's a there's a uh, a famous football coach who who uh, let's see if I can find it. Probably won't find it. But I'm going to look at something else here. I just scrolled down. This uh, there were 17 deaths at this shooting on Valentine's Day in Highland Park, Florida. So the, the newspapers said there's been 18 school shootings in this so far this year. That is a bald-faced lie. There have not been 18 school shootings separate incidents in our country this year. It's flat not true. Six days prior at Metropolitan High School in New York, a student fired a gun into the floor in a classroom. There were no injuries. The student didn't intend to fire the gun. The student reached into a, 
container, whether it was a backpack or a lunchbox or whatever it was, and accidentally pulled the trigger. And the round went into the floor in the classroom and there were no injuries. I don't know if this kid intentionally brought this thing to school or if it was belonged to a family member, it just happened to be in his backpack or what, but there was no, you know, it wasn't what people think of when you hear the word school shooting. On February 5th, a student went up to a school liaison guard and reached up and the, his handgun was in one of these skeleton-type uh, fiberglass holsters and the student pulled the trigger on the school security officer's gun. And it went bang. It went into the floor. The guy that was wearing that holster must have jumped a foot when his handgun went off when his kid reached up, pulled the trigger. Some handguns don't have safeties. When you pull the trigger, it's going to go bang. Nobody hurt. In Oak Hill, Maryland, a student was wounded in a parking lot during an apparent robbery. And because a student was injured in, in a parking lot, it's called a school shooting. A student in Los Angeles unintentionally fired a gun in a classroom and wounded two students. Now, they shouldn't be bringing guns to school. It's illegal. Two men were wounded in a fight in a school parking lot. They were not students. They were not parents. The fight occurred in a parking lot, and somebody fired a gun in self-defense. But the media calls this a school shooting. This may have been in the middle of the night when school wasn't even open. It doesn't say. An individual was ejected from a football or basketball game, some sport game, for fighting. And he got shot in the parking lot by the other, by his opponent, <laughs> after they were kicked out of the building during a, during a basketball game, a sporting event. And it could have been gymnastics, for all I know, but it was a school event. And these two adults went out and, got, and continued their fight in the parking lot, and one of them got shot. A student fired into the air outside of school. And I don't know what was involved there, but you know, nobody got hurt. It might have been just pointing a shotgun up in the air and pull the trigger. That was in, in uh, Louisiana. And... Uh, One student wounded another during a during an argument at a college sorority party. Shots were fired from a car near a school. Students heard gunfire, not on school property, but it's reported as a school shooting because a school stu a student reported it. 
Jordan committed some suicide in the bathroom. No other injuries. And this was on and on. But out of the 18 so-called school shootings, 16 of them did not involve somebody intending to shoot somebody at the school. But the news media grabs these things. I mean, students were standing in a parking lot and they heard gunfire somewhere in, in that town. And they reported that they heard gunfire because a student said they heard gunfire and it's reported as a school shooting. There's no school shooting. Fake news. Now, what happened in in Florida, near that town again, Highland Park, Florida, Parkland, Florida, excuse me, Parkland, Florida, and uh, this 19-year-old who had been expelled from school went in and shot the place up. He was on a psychotropic drug. People on psychotropic drugs are not able to use good judgment. They can't. They're impaired by drugs. It's like drunk driving. And, you know, if you're driving drunk, you're not as good at it as normally, and you make decisions that are erroneous. Pull out in front of somebody and get slammed. You shouldn't be doing that. But if you're drunk, you don't make good decisions. The same thing with psychotropic drugs. If a person is on psychotropic drugs of various kinds, they don't make good decisions. I talked to a, a funeral director years ago when I first became an EMT. Uh, there used to be a lot more drunk driving years ago than there is today. Drunk driving is is frowned upon by society. It didn't used to be. People would accept it that somebody was driving drunk. And, you know, you don't want to go 100 miles an hour when you're driving drunk. You try to you try to blend in and and not be visible so you don't get stopped for drunk driving. They are impaired. In fact, many states call it DWI, driving while impaired. Well, that covers more than alcohol. It covers marijuana. If you're smoking dope and driving, you're impaired. They need to find a, a, a way to rapidly evaluate these people. You open the car door and the whole thing smells like a like a bong party. Well, you know, somebody's smoking dope. And, you know, it, you're impaired. There ought to be a penalty for driving while impaired. Some people take pain meds, and I'm one of them. I, I had my shoulder re- rebuilt about 10 years ago. I have what's called a full tear. 
my shoulder was disconnected from the rigging that it's supposed to be attached to. And it drooped right down. And I had it repaired. And the doc says, now, he says, I'm good at this. And if you work at it, you can get 75% range of motion back. And before I went in for surgery, I met separately with the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the OR nurse. And they all asked me the same question. What are you taking for pain? I said, Tylenol. He said, yeah, but what's your prescription? I said, I have a prescription. This is before surgery. I had to wait almost eight weeks for surgery to get the good doc. So he said, I can get you 75% range of motion. I said, well, I, said, I need 100%. Why do you want 100%? Most people are happy with 75%. I said, not me. I said, you can't put a canoe on top of the truck with one arm. I said, I need to be able to put a canoe on top of the truck. It takes two arms. You have to be able to lift your hand, arms straight up. He's okay. All right. I can see you've got an attitude. Don't do anything for 30 days. Don't move it. Don't even think about moving it. Take a shower. Get out of the shower. Dry it off. Put it back in the sling. Don't even think. Don't even try to reach out and tune the radio. Nothing. For 30 days. Okay? Deal. And I did that. I... I uh, went 30 days, and then I went to Helga's House of Pain, physical therapy. That's what they call it, Helga's House of Pain. But I have a T-shirt that I wore the first time I went, and it's Marine Corps T-shirt. It's got a Marine emblem on the front and on the back. It says, pain is weakness, weakness leaving the body. <laughs> so... I was never a Marine. I just got the T-shirt. But this physical therapist, all right, all right, I can see. You know, so here, look. They had this, this finger ladder on the wall. You use your fingers to walk your arm up the wall. I got, I'm tall, so I got two steps from the top of this thing. My hand's well up over my head. She grabbed my arm and held it. She says, doesn't that hurt? I said, it hurt when I came in here. You said to see what I could do. She said, okay, all right, okay. <laughs> Laid me down and started manipulating my shoulder gently with you know, considerably careful and gentle about moving my shoulder. And she'd watch my face, and when I'd, when I'd kind of cringe, she'd stop because I didn't complain. Her name was Deb Six, S-I-X, and she was good in what she does. I have a great deal of respect for physical therapists because they know what they're doing. So when the doc is done, they take over. And she had a roller. She'd roll around my shoulder like a little tiny rolling pin. And uh, they used the same roller in print shops to spread ink on printing plates. Anyway... She, uh, she'd roll it around to prevent scar tissue from building up in my shoulder. So, so what she was doing is, as my shoulder was healing, she would roll this around and move stuff around so it wouldn't heal too much. That hurt. But she knew what she was doing. And she told me, don't you take off and go. Now, just wait. We'll, we'll get through this. A year later, I went to the doc. 
And I said, uh, he said, well, you don't have an appointment. I said, I know. So I said, I just want to thank him. Thank him? Nobody thanks him. I said, well, I want to thank him. So the doc came out in the hall and said, now what have you done to yourself? Nothing, nothing. I just wanted to show you. I pointed my hand straight up in the air, over the top of my head, down by my ear, and and scratched my neck on the opposite side. Ah, it wasn't easy, was it? No, it wasn't easy. But I told you I was going to do it. People, too many people lack the discipline and the determination to overcome a situation like a shoulder that's ripped right loose. I did that to myself. Nobody helped me. Nobody told me I had to do this. I helped a couple set the ridge pole up on their log home, and my shoulder let go. It failed structurally, and I had no idea that could happen. I figured if it was too heavy, I couldn't lift it. Well, it was too heavy, and it just ripped loose. Well, I tell you, that was an event. I've been there passed out up there, and way up the top of that ladder. I had used my good arm to lower myself down, and I said, okay, folks, you got it. That beam is in there. You put your rafters up now. See ya. I went back to my camp. Tears rolling right down my cheeks, and he didn't notice it. So I got some of this oxycontin, oxycodone, I forget which one of them, oxy anyway. And he gave me a prescription for 50 of them. And I came home and said, take two every four hours as needed. Well, it started to hurt. So I took two. Didn't know any better. Fifteen minutes later, I lost my supper into a plastic wastebasket. The room was moving around. I can't imagine anybody wanting to do this for entertainment purposes. So I said, well, that's not going to work. So I took one and two Tylenol for two days. Then I started taking a half of one before bedtime and a half of one in the morning with Tylenol. And after 30 days, I brought that jar back to the doc and set it on his desk, and I said, that's it. Don't want that around the house. You know what to do with it. At the time, I didn't know what to do with it. I could have taken it to the police department and dropped it in the barrel. I didn't know they had such a thing. I had never had prescriptions like that before. My entire life, I've had three prescriptions. Two were the result of injuries, and the other one, I had pneumonia about 25 years ago. A friend of mine has got pneumonia right now. He's in the hospital with it. He thought he had a cold. He just wasn't getting better. He's got pneumonia. Tough guy. Kept plugging away at it. You reach a point where you need to seek medical assistance. That's what I did. I went went too long with my pneumonia. I beat it once. Recovered. Everything was good. A few years later, I got pneumonia again about 25 years ago. And the doc said, hey, Rod, you're not supposed to wait till you're dying to come in, you know. (laughs) So... Gave me some heavy-duty 
antibiotics and recovered from the from the pneumonia, but I never got my wind back. Never had as much wind as I did before I had the pneumonia. So I didn't recover 100%. You think you're sick, you know. Got an ordinary cold or a slight touch of the flu, that's one thing. But if you're if you've got an illness like pneumonia and it's not getting better, go to the doctor. Don't wait. Because you could lose you could have a permanent deficit. My case is I, I don't have the wind I used to have. So let's see. Got thirteen minutes to go here. We have a constitution in our country, and we have a right to keep and bear arms. Keep means have, own, possess. Bear means carry. You can carry. And I I talked with Bruce Poliquin when he first said he wanted to run for Congress. I said, well, I'll give you a few bullet points that will really get you votes in the 2nd District one of which was constitutional carry. The Constitution says you can carry. Bear means carry. So it's a responsibility. You know, when you make that choice to carry a, a handgun, you know, it's there because you might need it. It's like a fire extinguisher. You know, when you need a fire extinguisher, you need to be able to pick it up and pull the trigger. You don't want to have to go find some ingredients and mix them and load up the fire extinguisher. You want to put the fire out right then. The same with a handgun. Somebody said to me, well, would you shoot to kill? I said, I'd shoot to live. I'd shoot to live. I don't want to shoot anybody. Nobody wants to shoot anybody. But when it comes right down to it, if, if it, you're going to live or die, choose life. We should choose life in the beginning, and we should choose life later. So we got this situation, and you know somebody comes into a, a convenience store and starts waving a gun around. You know they're going <clears> to <throat> rob the convenience store. You know. You have a decision to make. You know, the thing you could do is just kind of step around the corner and get away from it. Because the fact that this guy's going to steal a whole row of lottery tickets, or he's going to steal cigarettes, or he's going to steal 150 bucks that's in the till at the convenience store, you know, you don't kill somebody over that. You'll find them. They'll charge him with burglary or robbery, and he'll go to jail. But if he starts shooting the place up, that's another matter entirely. Escalated out of control. And that threat needs to be stopped. You, need to, you don't want to die there on the floor of the convenience store. So, but every single situation is different. We have the opportunity to make choices to deal with these types of things. And the responsible people carry. There are lots of people who carry that you never see. You don't realize they're carrying. 
and and that's fine. You know, you don't take take it out and compare it with your buddy's handgun at Walmart. It's not the place. You know, you're talking about you've got a Beretta and he's got a Glock and the other guy's got a a. You don't you don't take them out and discuss this at Walmart. That's not the place to do that. You go to the gravel pit. Go in your backyard. Do it in your own living room. You know, talk about having firearms. You don't want to freak out the customers at Walmart. They teach responsible firearms ownership. At Appleseed, we teach the safe and efficient use of firearms. We don't talk about tactical stuff. We just talk about safe handling of firearms and accurate shooting. We teach people how to shoot accurately. And the goal of Project Appleseed is for somebody to be able to take a rack-grade rifle they've never seen before and reliably hit a 20-inch square at 500 yards. 500 yards. That's a long way away. But you don't want to fight hand-to-hand. You've got an enemy that's coming after you. The place to dump him is at 500 yards, not when he bashes in your front door. So we teach that. And we have, we've never had a firearms-related accident at an apple seed. Had, we had one person that had it where a, a rifle fired out of battery. In other words, the bolt wasn't all the way forward and the, and the round went off. The bullet went down, exited the barrel, but the case wasn't all the way in. So a chunk, little piece of brass, when the case ruptured from, from the force of the gunpowder, a little piece of brass hit the guy in the knuckle and nicked his knuckle. And that's the only one that I know of at an Appleseed event. It was a it was a firearm and ammunition malfunction. But the rifle was pointed in a safe direction. So when it went bang, it went down to the target. got the prisoners moved. Governor LePage moved them from Pachayas to Charleston. News, news media is all excited about it. And uh, I said, well, we weren't told. Yeah, they were told. They just weren't told it's going to be at 4.30 in the morning. And legislature had a bill come up before them. And they said, uh, you know, we're going to do this. Well, they wanted to keep keep Matthias open because I think there were 48 employees at the jail down there. It's not a big jail, but it, it was expensive to operate that facility. You got to have guards there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can't just lock them up for the night and go away, leave them there, you know, in, in their cells, and let them out for breakfast. You know, it doesn't work that way. They need adult supervision. They're in there because they they don't they've chosen not to follow the rules. 
Well, they're over in Charleston right now, and the legislature said, no, we're, we're not going to vote to keep it open. That was yesterday, today's paper. The primary is coming up. The political parties in the state of Maine have to have primaries prior to around March 15th. And that's where a town will get together and say, all the Republicans will get together, as many as want to show up. It might be two people. It might be a whole room full. But they're going to get together and they they want to elect a town chairman. They want to elect a delegate to the county committee or some delegates. Some big towns have eight or ten delegates to the county committee. Some only have one. Every town is, a close, is, is entitled to have one delegate, no matter how small a town is, to the county committee. Then you elect people to represent your town at the state convention, which is going to be held in Augusta this year. Last couple of years it was in. Last couple of conventions were in Bangor. This time it's going to be in Augusta. You can go down there and you're going to vote for the platform. This is how, these are the goals of our party for the next two years. So you, you, you approve the platform, you amend the platform, or you vote no on the platform, in which case there's a big scramble. We get together and say, well, what do you want? And we'll, they may amend the platform if it doesn't pass. It's a rare thing. I'm not sure this has ever happened, but it could happen. There's something in there that people just really don't want to support. They'll force them to take it out of the platform. And a convention is a time when you get a whole bunch of people of very similar goals together in one place. And it's enjoyable. But even in you know, the political parties are not not completely uniform. They have all different agendas, whether they be motor vehicle inspections or whether they be fishing game laws or, or can we hunt on Sunday or not? And should the state be subsidizing windmills? Should the state be subsidizing hydropower? You know, the water's going to run downhill anyway. Why not grab it on the way by and use it to turn the wheel and produce electricity? There's one uh, that I know, and she's uh, she's uh, a big-time constitutional convention person. She's for responsible taxation, and she's, you know, for she supports private ownership of firearms. But she wants to take our Constitution and start over. That's a very dangerous thing. You know, people fought and died to support this Constitution and protect our rights, and they want to change it. I think that's too dangerous. Right now, it's in the platform, and I'm on the platform committee. And around the third week of March, I forget the exact date, the platform committee is going to meet, and there's 21 people on the platform committee. 
There's one from each county, and there's five others. There's going to be 21 people. And I want to see that one thing taken out. That we, as a state, should not be approving or recommending the shredding of our Constitution and start over. Because once you start down that road, it's going to be like a revolutionary war all over again because people are not going to allow their rights to be given up. People fought and died for that Constitution. And I don't think they're going to be able to throw it out. I certainly hope not. So this has been the Northern Maine Landman Show with the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Brought to you today on TalkShoe Radio. Look up and find look up and find when and where your town is gonna to have a caucus. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Green or a Constitution Party or some other thing. Get together with the people that belong to your party and have a discussion and send people off to represent you for your party and for your state. The world is run by to the people that show up. And if you sit home and ignore what's happening around you, we're at risk of losing our Constitution. The risk that we should not choose to make, in my opinion. Got to go. Because it's about everybody. It's about the Greens. It's about the environmentalists. It's about the Democrats. It's about the Republicans. And it's a risky time that we're living in. We're trying to keep our way of life that we've had and enjoyed and earned and fought for. Have a good weekend. The blue sky is showing. Be safe. God bless.